0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified Program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov.
2: Afternoon and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liu, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking to authors Daryl Benjamin and Lyndon Vickler about their newly published book, Farm to Table, The Essential Guide to Sustainable Food Systems for Students, Professionals, and Consumers. Peter Hoffman, who is the chef and owner at Savoy and the Back 40 Restaurants, is quoted as saying, what took me 20 years to figure out, you can learn by spending several hours with Daryl and Lyndon's terrific book. Later on the show, we will be speaking with Birgit Cameron, Senior Director of Patagonia Provisions, about the innovative work that Patagonia is doing in the food space. So we're really excited to get into that, but um, before we do, we want to talk through some of the big food policy stories in the past week, and joining me in the studio to do so is my associate producer, Taylor Lanzett. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Jenna. How's it going? I had an awful subway experience. You did, (laughs) yes. I feel like most of my subway experiences are awful. (laughs) Hey, I made it. You're here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about food food policy news. What's up?
3: So last week, a bill was signed that transferred 71,000 acres of federal public land um, in Nevada to six tribes. The Obama administration has put a lot of effort into restoring tribal homelands, and in total, the administration has returned over 500,000 acres. And of those, 325 have been used for agriculture.
2: Right, which is uh, a lot and very exciting. Yeah. And I think that this is a really um, important update to discuss because this is a, a group, Native American people, um, in this country that have been marginalized for generations. And I think that sometimes it's one that we sort of forget about mm-hmm, when we talk mm-hmm. about the need for food system reform and what groups are kind of adversely and disproportionately affected um, Um, by our food system in this country, especially in terms of the health outcomes. So I think I was really excited to see this. And um, it also just kind of speaks to like food sovereignty is a big issue. And it's really important um, with respect to Native Americans. So um, I think that this is a really good, exciting development that can help um, further, like encourage the, the products um, to be produced that are integral to Native American cultures that are at risk of extension. Absolutely. Extension. So I mean, that's my soapbox
3: for yeah, today. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> um, and what's really cool is under these initiatives, tribes and states across the country have land immediately put into trusts, which makes the land tax-exempt and tribes can gain governmental oversight yeah. over the land. So That's super important. Furthering sort of that food sovereignty approach. Absolutely. Uh, next, the USDA is cracking down on animal abuse. In a USDA food safety and inspection service proposal last Friday, the agency said that they plan to hold transportation companies and employees responsible for abuse of cattle, pigs, sheep, and goats... During the loading and unloading process,
2: and this is a departure, right from yeah, yeah. it's a total departure, and it's also um, specifically talking about live animals, right? And and they're like targeting transportation firms, which mm-hmm. is something different than the producers, correct? Um, that maybe they historically did, but I mean, um, I think we're going to start seeing a lot, a lot more sort of legislation around animal welfare in mm-hmm. in this next month or not month but um year um and also kind of hopefully 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 <laughs> um i think it's uh, one of these issues that i Um, I'm forecasting, you heard it here first, (laughs) that we're going to start seeing more um, movement on. But um, obviously, industry is going to probably put up a fight, which is because... um, Well, no, I I actually
3: don't think they will. What? (laughs) And this is partially because this is, of course, um, a baby step. And the rule doesn't cover chickens and turkeys, which account for like 90% of live animals transported.
2: Oh, okay. So because... <laughs> so, like, one I step think, forward, two steps back? No, I or I think, like hole. a crawl forward <laughs> progress a question mark. A 10% yeah.
3: crawl forward. But again, I think the key is that they're targeting transportation companies right. and, like... What's to say that, like, these animals also won't increase? You know, like, I would love to see more sheep and goats on menus. Mm -hmm. Let's get off that chicken. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah, so the health arm of the WHO, the World Health Organization, is calling on countries across the globe to consider taxation of sugary beverages as a way to combat obesity. Um, And they're even going as far as to no longer sell any sugary drinks at their HQ in Geneva. This is,
2: this was... Obviously, a really big announcement, um, and it is very exciting, um, especially since uh, Pepsi's with Pepsi's announcement um, to reduce sugar in its drinks and the sustainability report for 2025 that just came out.
3: Yeah. So, what Jen is referring to is that Pepsi promised by 2025 at least two thirds of Pepsi's global beverage portfolio volume will have 100 calories of fewer. From added sugars, for 12 ounce serving. So that's a mouthful. But, yeah. That's- <laughs> um, I mean, it's essentially just an aggressive goal to right. have, um, especially for a soda company. Yeah, and they also have some goals for that's in that same report that target sodium and saturated fat.
2: Yeah. So, and this is like um, kind of apropos of what's been going on in the states around talk about soda taxes and um, not just the states, actually. Um, Worldwide. Yeah. But, you know, we'll see if Pepsi can deliver on this. I think um, we know that they set, like, a goal in 2009 um, to reduce sugars by 2020, and they actually increased. So yeah. let's see if they can meet this commitment. Yeah. But good for them for putting it forward, right, and, and yeah. publicly announcing, like, this is the direction we're trying to go.
3: I also think that, like, they're publicly announced that this is the direction they're trying to go, but also – the fact that they're acknowledging, totally. right, that like their product is
2: flawed, yeah, right, like they need to reinvent themselves, right, right, right. Very, very important point. Is instead of just putting their head in the sand and being yeah. like, "Sugar doesn't really cause obesity." <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So good, good so, for Pepsi. Yeah. Um, so
3: in other news, for about a year now, there have been rumors about Amazon potentially opening up brick and mortar locations. And last yeah. week, the Wall Street Journal reported that many locations are actually in the works. Um, and they will not only include curbside pickup, but also walk-in convenience stores where you can purchase perishables.
2: Yeah. So this move really suggests that Amazon wants to be seen as a more serious player mm-hmm. in the grocery business. And to do it, it's kind of like an admission that they can't achieve this goal on you know solely relying on e-commerce. Or drones. Um, <laughs> or drones, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, But for, like, a long time, we've been watching brick-and-mortar retailers, like, Walmart, um, try to figure out how to break into and be successful in like the digital, um, playing field. That's Amazon's home turf. And so now, um, I don't know, like Amazon's, I guess, conceding that some grocery items might not really work for online purchasing, but regardless, I'm like sensing a big retail showdown. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's going to happen?
3: We'll find out. I know. Stay tuned. (laughs) Um, last up election updates. So 20 days until the election. Thank God for <laughs> that exhaustion I hear. Yeah, I know. It is. It um, is. It's I, like emotional exhaustion, yeah. I think. I mean, it needs to be over. <laughs> um, what? There are a couple of fun tidbits um, in the past week. So. The first one is that um, if the Clintons return to the White House, they will absolutely keep Michelle Obama's garden um, as they love it for the food and sort of educational opportunities that it provides for youth across the country.
2: Yeah, that's like a no-brainer.
3: Yeah. (laughs) That would be like such a bad image on like the Washington Post. Just tearing down a school garden.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We're done with this. (laughs) Just like pouring concrete over it. Oh, my God.
3: (laughs) Um, Also, the second fun tidbit um, was about HRC and... GMO labeling with the most recent WikiLeaks. Um, and so GMO labeling uh, advocate Gary Hirschberg of Stonyfield mm-hmm. has really pushed her campaign to take a strong stance on labeling, um, arguing that it would resonate with a lot of Bernie supporters. But as we know, Hillary is not 100% anti GMO.
2: Yeah, I mean, she's she's been more focused on like wanting to kind of like look more into the research about what could GMOs possibly be used for other than their primary use right now, mm-hmm. um, which is herbicide resist- resistance. So some of the things that it could be used for that you know might be of interest is like drought resistant seeds and in, in desert like environments, right? And this is something that could be really important for yeah. global food security. One might argue. Um, on another Wiki note leak, in a speech that Hills gave to GE Global Leadership in 2014, she dismissed th- the threats that Republicans made to the SNAP program, mm. switching gears here, um, and argued that food stamps are important for economic growth and that the program's crucial for, uh, you know, it's, provides a crucial safety net for poor and low income families. Preach. Preach uh, <laughs> the obvious.
3: The, yeah totally <laughs> i mean you know um we're <laughs> Duh. uh also big debate tonight <laughs> number 3 Whew. um and, you know, immigration has yet to be discussed. Yep. We, like, barely covered it. Um, and I am waiting to see the connections to be made between immigration and food policy.
2: Yeah. I mean, we know they're there, the um, <laughs> connections, <laughs> according to the USDA. Just to give everyone some background, over half of U.S. farm workers are foreign-born, and that number gets even higher when you add in first-generation U.S. residents. So, if we restrict immigration um, from uh, countries like Mexico and those in Central America, we're definitely going to see major impacts on our food system, um, such as a reduction in production overall and an increase in food prices and maybe even a decrease in variety.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's also important to note that we're talking about some of the most vulnerable populations in the U.S., right? So low-income, undocumented farm workers and their families. Um, So seeing an immigration platform that considers its role to reform our food system and improve the lives of millions of farm workers would have like major impacts in terms of food safety, pesticide use, um, harassment in like farm workers and fields. And yeah, um, so it could be, it would be amazing.
2: Yeah. We'll see if they talk about it tonight. Yeah. All Maybe right. that
3: and social security too. <laughs>
2: Just a couple of things. They just haven't. We haven't like gotten to some small little topics. Um, yeah. Yes. All right. Well, we're gonna leave it there for the news today. If you have thoughts on the issues we discussed or ideas for topics that you want to hear us report on moving forward, be sure to email us at Eating Matters at heritageradionetwork.org dot org or tweet to us at Eat Matters
3: Music for this short break is brought to you by
4: TaxStar, and this track is called Like It in Dreams.
2: Now for our feature story of the day, joining us on the line is Daryl Benjamin and Lyndon Vickler to discuss their new book, Farm to Table. Daryl teaches sustainability at Green Mountain College and is a passionate food advocate um, for a sustainable food system. And Lyndon is a chef instructor and the dean of faculty at the New England Culinary Institute. Daryl and Lyndon, welcome to the show.
5: Oh, thank you, well, for thank me. you Jenna.
2: Hmm. Um, so, h- let's start from the beginning. How did you two come to write this book, and why?
4: I'm um, sure um, we actually were approached by another publisher that wanted to sort of get into the topic of farm to table. And uh, Daryl had a, a strong interest in sort of broad agricultural and food food uh, system issues, and I have a long experience of being a chef. But working within the Vermont food system through things like the Vermont Fresh Network, and we decided we wanted to kind of share our knowledge both with our students, but also with the general public, because a lot of people want to know where their food comes from and what they can do to support a more sustainable food system.
3: Yeah, that was something that really surprised me about the book, because in many ways it seems like your target audience is quite broad. I mean, almost everyone. So. Um, who do you envision really using this book and um, how?
4: Right. Um, you know, basically, it's, the audience is everything from students to consumers who want to know where their food comes from, um, as well as professional cooks, food service managers, and purchasers who want some practical tips on how to purchase and operate in a way that supports a sustainable food system. And in the book we have a number of resources available uh, both for both angles. We've got a sort of broad historical perspective about the issues of this, the current food system, uh, the uh, producers that are, alternative producers that are, are, are producing, you know, uh, healthy animals in, in pasture, pasture-raised situations, monocultures, polycultures, things like that, uh, and as well as having a more practical sort of purchasing guide, uh, for folks that to about what things they should look for when they're when
2: they're purchasing. Um, there's a, a big focus in the in the book on k- providing advice and information for people going into the restaurant industry specifically. Why do you um, think that these issues like envir- the environmental and human costs of of industrial agriculture um, are important for restaurant pr- professionals to know?
4: Uh, well, you know because many of the the aspects of farm-to-table um, are a way of solving many of the solutions that we have in, in the world today, and you know, everything from obesity to climate change to our shrinking supply of land and, and um, uh, potable water. And, concern, you know, customers want to know where their food comes from. They want to support uh, restaurants and producers that are sourcing food locally and, and regionally. They want to support their local economies. They want to support the farm down the road. You know, and... Uh, so there's a strong interest in people really want to know about
2: Um Okay, so I, can you give us a little bit of a, some background on, like, how big the restaurant industry is, just um, for some context? You know, some, for some context?
4: Uh, you know, the restaurant industry is, is the, the largest non-government. Well, if you put restaurant and food industry together, it's the largest uh, employer in the country. So we're impacting thousands of people in their working situations, as well as the, the fact that so many people – Eat food outside of the home nowadays. So people are eating um, two or three meals a day um, yeah. outside of home. So they need to have healthy, safe choices. And yeah. they want to make those choices in a way that uh, is positive for planet as well.
3: And so, as the title suggests, much of the focus is around farm to table. Can you tell us how you define this concept in your book and um, sort of how you guys thought through um how to show that to the readers?
4: Sure. Um, so we, you know, we, think of, we, we, we think of it as sort of a broader system uh, that embraces a few core concepts, you know, things like focus on fresh, wholesome, and flavorful food, a commitment to supporting local farmers and producers, and to the rights of farm and food industry workers, and a commitment to sustainable farming and fishing, um, sustainable uh, humane animal husbandry, and supporting the local economy. And everyone has their own focus in terms of which of those values are most important to them. Uh, One restaurant might be really focused on local, where another one might be really focused on organic, because they're really concerned about pesticides and things like that. And and individuals and institutions might have a slightly different focus either way, but those are sort of the, the broad general principles.
2: Um, and you talk a lot about the power of institutional procurement, um, uh, Daryl. Do you wanna do you wanna talk about um, why the focus on institutional procurement in particular?
5: Um, actually, that was Lyndon's outwink. If you wanna talk food justice, you can talk to me, okay.
2: <laughs> Lyndon. For you.
4: <laughs> okay, sure. So, um, you know, while not everyone can eat in a fine dining restaurant. You know, nearly everyone eats. In a hospital cafeteria, or a school food service, or things like that. So, it's a first of all, it's a very wide audience. So, if we can get um, farm, you know, farm fresh foods into the institutions, it has a broad impact in terms of getting healthy food to more people. Um, and then, second, um, the institutional um, the volume of of uh, purchasing in institutional operations is so big that it can really have a sustainable effect for maybe a medium-sized regional producer that's struggling to compete with the large commodity producers. They produce too much to uh, be able to market directly to the public through things like farmers' markets. Mm-hmm. So this is a perfect uh, way of sort of supporting, um, you know, mid-scale producers that are trying to, to uh, grow things in a sustainably and raise animals humanely. Uh, it's a way of sort of solidifying their, their role. Um, and then at the same time, there's the option for smaller producers to, to aggregate together through cooperatives and things like that and, and supply, you know, the, the larger institutions. It's really a way of sort of, uh, uh, sort of, stream, uh, sort of standardizing it and providing a steady cash flow.
2: Right. And one of the things that I've heard in some of my work with institutional purchasing um, that focuses on local um, products is that sometimes it's hard for institutions to be able to plan in advance and then also guarantee certain crops um, like a year in advance when the when when like. Those crops, there might be an issue with those crops down the line, and and um, they're kind of on the hook. The institutions are still on the hook for for having to um, pay for for whatever goods, even if they didn't quite turn out in the size, the quantity that they had originally intended. Do you have any advice in this book for some of the more like nuanced questions um, and challenges that that institutions can face when trying to buy local?
4: Yes. Yeah, so- strategies would be um, uh, dealing with a few different suppliers so that if one has a climate event that impacts their supply, there's another one available. Um, the other one is uh, being pr- flexible in the menu, maybe not being so specific on which type of greens you're going to use, but uh, knowing that you can, if you can't get uh, spinach, then maybe you can get arugula or, or other salad greens. Um, and then there are a number of really great organizations like Farm to Institution New England that have some buying guides and tips for folks um, in terms of uh, managing those ups and downs. But uh, a lot of it is having that relationship where maybe you've got a few different suppliers that you're dealing with, so you've got a little flexibility.
3: Daryl, can you walk us through the growth of the food justice movement? Um, I'm thinking a lot about sort of how um, now we see, you know, lots of movement in terms of, like, uh, you know, obviously the intersection of social justice causes um, and food issues even, you know, in terms of prisons starting gardens, in terms of um, people like SNAP advocacy um, in uh, corner stores. And
5: well, you know, uh, a a century ago, I don't think we even needed food advocates and food justice. uh, If you think about food that was delivered on the small scale, Mm problems began to happen um, actually coinciding with the Green Revolution, whose focus was technological. Uh, It was driven by technology to create efficiencies. These efficiencies actually made sense from a manufacturing point of view. But unfortunately, many of them were based on assembly line thinking even similar to Henry Ford and the Model T, Mm -hmm.
3: Um,
5: their concentration was on increasing yield by efficiencies, by increasing efficiencies. Um, This they did and were credited with saving 1 billion people's lives. So that's uh, quite a feat. But when you think about more, without the balancing effect of nutrition and good health, um, there is a disconnect. And this is the reaction. We are now witnessing the reaction to the Green Revolution.
3: Yeah. So... I guess I'm really yeah. interested in sort of more of like the social movements perspective. So I think back to the beginning of the National School Lunch and National School Breakfast Program, and a lot of yeah. that work was actually inspired by the free breakfast programs in Oakland that were started by the Black Panther Party. Um, so I guess like that type of social movement is something that like I think really maybe captured some of that excitement around food justice as an intersection of social justice.
5: Yes. Well, if if you think about what's happening right now in food desert, there are pop up markets showing up, let's say, on a regular basis, in order to bring food exactly where it's needed, mm-hmm. when it's needed. Um, this is an activist approach, similar to what you're describing, mm-hmm. because it goes directly to the people.
2: Yeah. Um Speaking of um, an activist approach, um, <laughs> <laughs>
4: <Nice>.
2: <laughs> yeah, n- I mean, like well, I mean, I'm I'm I want to kind of shift the focus to um, consumers. What are your advice for consumers um, to avoid the pitfalls of greenwashing? Like, how are you? How How is a consumer to know if a restaurant is not doing what they are marketing that they're doing?
3: Like the well, good work.
5: Well, I, I think in terms of grocery stores, and Lyndon thinks in terms of restaurants, but he's a chef. Right. That's why we're so good together. But in terms of grocery stores, the commercial, uh, the, the consumer can ask for locally grown. They can ask their local supermarket to set up a, uh, an area for local farmers so that they can supply directly people they know, people that are in their community. Also, they can ask for. I mean, they can see that there's a new movement of ugly fruit, ugly vegetables. Mm-hmm. In other words, non-industrial, mm-hmm. uh, so they don't look like perfect,
2: awful, imperfect. Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah imp- imperfect. imperfect yeah.
5: Right. And it, it actually, the movement is called the ugly food movement. Yeah. Because they're, they're trying to make to make it acceptable today. So it's a marketing thing.
3: Speaking of marketing, can you talk about the marketing of organic and conventional food? I'm really interested in sort of how the strategies are different and sort of what have been some of the successes and failures uh, of both.
2: Uh, Lyndon, do you want to take that?
3: Okay, sure. Um,
4: yeah, so, you know, a lot of it is just, um, you know, being transparent and, and really providing information about where the food is coming from. A lot of restaurants uh, and institutions will have a, a list of their farm partners that they that they work with, and they'll do regular sort of exchanges so they can visit the farms, and the and the farmers can visit the, the restaurants or the schools or the institution. Um, uh, so, you know, I think um, you're asking about uh, organic versus conventional, or oh.
2: yeah, the, the marketing approach, um, uh-huh. how how it differs.
4: Yeah, I think you know. The the big approach for organic is to highlight the fact that it's healthy and and not only healthy for the consumer, but also for the farm worker that's picking the fruits Mm -hmm. and vegetables that they're not getting inundated with pesticides and things like that. Um, And um, one of the things we talk about in the book is, like, the debate about organic versus local and large organic versus uh, local and and small organic. And, you know, one of the issues are, you know, some of the values of the organic are you know fresh, local, knowing where your food comes from, um, humane animal husbandry. When you get into a really large international organic operation coming from Mexico, you don't really have that transparency, and you're losing some of those values. Uh, so sometimes if we see a, a local producer that's maybe not 100% organic, but is still employing sustainable practices, that we would choose to support that person over a you know a uh, international uh, larger. Organic.
2: Great. Um, Yeah, I just... Um, One other thing
5: about that, if I can, Um, I I could hardly hear because I'm sorry about the connection, but uh, one of the approaches we take in the book is that we apply exactly marketing products to marketing fresh food by using the seven P's of marketing, which is standard marketing theory. Uh, For example, product, price, place. Um, we talked about it, uh, promotion, and all of that is broken down through the lens of barn to Table in the book.
2: So you, you, you basically take the um, tried and true principles of marketing yeah. from a private sector exactly. approach, and you apply them to this um, aspect of the food movement, in order to promote Exactly.
5: Including changes. people in process.
2: Yes. Oh, that's great. I think that's, um, I think that's a very uh, useful kind of framework. Um, yeah. Wonderful. It,
5: it actually lends itself quite smoothly. Right. Uh, it worked quite well for us. Yeah.
2: Oh, great. All right. Well, I have one final question before we wrap it up for today. Um, where can our listeners find a copy of your book?
4: Uh, it's, it's Amazon. Apple, uh, <laughs> Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through the Chelsea Green website. Hey.
2: And Chelsea Green is your publisher, right? Yes, right. Oh, wonderful. All right, well, I want to thank you both so much for joining the show. The book is great, um, and I I think especially one of the things I liked about it is that um, for people who uh, might not have familiarity with all of these really important issues, it is a wonderful, wonderful um, primer that is very uh, (laughs) engaging and also informative.
5: That's exactly how we envisioned it to be, so right. it's gratifying to hear you say that,
2: <laughs> Well, yes, yes. Good job. <laughs> thank
5: you, thank
4: you. Thank you guys
2: both for being on the show today.
4: Okay, thank you Oh, It was our pleasure. Great.
2: All right, we're going to take a, a really quick commercial break, but when we come back, um, we will um, be speaking with Birgit Cameron from Patagonia Provisions, which is our featured startup of the week. Stay tuned. <laughs>
4: Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Tackstar, and this track is called Relax, it's only the end of the world.
1: New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified SEAL because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified SEAL tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do. But the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov.
2: Now everybody knows it's time for a final segment on today's episode, where we feature an innovative and exciting new food startup or company. Today, I am very pleased to introduce Birgit Cameron, Senior Director of Patagonia Provisions, a brand extension of the Outdoor Clothing and Gear Company, launched in 2012. Birgit, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, very happy to have you on. Um, so tell, tell me about Patagonia Provisions, yeah, so
6: uh, Patagonia Provisions is really about uh, rethinking our food supply chain. It's, it's part of the core tenets of our company to find solutions to the environmental crisis. And since agriculture, as it relates to food, is one of the biggest contributors to climate change, we just couldn't stay away.
2: Wow. Um, So um, what kind of products do you have? And well, actually, before we get into the products, um, I want to I want to kind of dig into what you mean by you couldn't stay away. So can you talk a little bit more about what the issues um, are that the division seeks to address?
6: Sure. Um, so I think when you think of Patagonia as a as an environmental company, we've been we've been dealing with the environment for a long time as it relates to our supply chain. And um, when we think about things like dealing with wool and ulex, hemp, cotton, all of those things, we've we have been working with agriculture for, for many, many years. And so as it relates to food, we felt uh, that it was important to apply the same things we applied on the apparel side to the food side. and. And one of those things is is organics, making sure that we we are incorporating organics and then also now taking it to the next level, which is regenerative organics, which include things like no-till and compost and um, uh, intercropping, things like that, that help uh, create healthy soil because what we've learned is that all roads <laughs> for climate. Um, yeah. It seems to, to end up um, directing to the health of the soil, and if the soil is healthy, it acts as a sponge for carbon, and it uses less water. And so, those are really positive things, uh, and that 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 touches both food and fiber.
2: Um, are there is there an overlap um, in the supply chain with regard to the agricultural inputs used for both um, textiles and food?
6: yes absolutely uh, i I think that uh, the practices apply to for sure fiber and food that that I was just talking about with the regenerative organic uh-huh. and then, in terms of the topics, you know for hemp, for instance, we're looking at um, what we can make uh, out of hemp on the food side, but also we are we are and we have hemp uh, products on our apparel side, and then, uh-huh. for instance, with our buffalo jerky uh, that's that that story is is about uh, bringing back the prairie and conservation um, and uh, the 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 jerky is. Um for sure, our wonderful food product. But then on the fiber side, you know, we're looking at, say, for instance, using the the wool for uh, filler in, right. in jackets and things like that. So there's oh. some cross uh, function
2: here between agricultural between agricultural products. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. So okay, so I kind of jumped the gun in getting into these issues. Can you tell us, like, I mean, a little bit just broadly about what types of products you sell and how you um, envision Uh, people consuming them? Like are they mostly uh, targeting like outdoors people like energy bars or are they more everyday sort of products?
6: Now Everything we make is really meant for everyday. It's just everyday lifestyle. So you need to fuel your life no matter what. Yes. <laughs> and so even if you are an alpinist and want to go climb something, you need to fuel yourself on a daily basis. And sure. most people like you and me and, and others I know are working every day and coming home and feeding a family and things like that. So we really concentrated on making nutritionally dense products that are delicious that you can incorporate into your everyday lifestyle and that are super convenient. They're 10-minute meals and, um, and really delicious.
2: Um, um, awesome. And so, so it runs the gamut, it sounds like, um, in terms of the types of products you guys sell.
6: Yeah. So, you know, everything that we make uh, at Provisions has a deep reason for being. So our salmon, is about saving the wild salmon species so we can have wild salmon in our future. So we look at techniques that are best for that. Mm-hmm. Um, our buffalo jerky is about restoring the prairie, and, um, you know, that's an ecosystem that's of tremendous importance um, because it acts as this giant sponge for carbon. Right. And um, the buffalo really are a keystone to making that system work well. Huh. Um, and our grains and legumes and things like that are about highlighting the needs for organic regenerative practices and promoting soil health and you know power of legumes, power of alternative grains that are um, really healthy for you outside of the normal monoculture grains that we've been
2: what, what producing. Are, what are some of those that you guys are working on? So
6: we actually have incorporated uh, buckwheat um very much into what we have one of our soups has the buckwheat in it and oh. we've just launched some breakfasts that have uh buckwheat in and, and and buckwheat was one of those crops that used to be around when we had much more diversity in our uh crop system before mm-hmm. we went to this monoculture uh way <laughs> and um it went away the infrastructure went away uh uh, and uh, you know, so we ended up having to grow it here and shipping it to Asia and, and processing, bringing it back to process, yeah. right? And and so we felt that you know this was something that you know a it's got a really great nutritional density to it. It's you know delicious um, and it's um, a power pack. So and it's a really great uh, crop for the regenerative practices. It's also. Fantastic for pollination, oh, so we wow. really wanted to bring back infrastructure to uh, to our country, to our turf, to be able to uh, have more accessibility, to have the farmers be able to grow it and process it easier, yeah. and um, and you know, stimulate regional economy around that particular uh, crop.
2: And is the company also investing in that um, infrastructure? as well um, to actually process uh, more non-traditional grains, for
1: example?
6: Yeah, yeah. So with the buckwheat, for instance, we have invested in a mill up in the Skagit Valley, working with Dr. Steve Jones at WSU's Bread Lab Mm -hmm. um, and farmers up there, and what that's done so far is really actually started to incubate a lot of other little companies that are getting excited about the fact that there's a buckwheat mill available, and so it connects the farmer, the miller, the brewer, the baker, and... You know anybody else interested in in what that can represent? And so, with through our investment company, twenty million and change, we are uh, providing the funds to make that mill happen. Wow! And then incorporate awesome. the buckwheat into our food.
2: Wow! Um, all right. So everything your that you have kind of explained sounds incredible, um, and also maybe a little bit challenging. So I'm wondering what your biggest challenge has been um, in thinking through things like trying to um, revamp uh, like processing facilities and finding similar applications for, um, or you know, uses, uh, actually different uses for the same agricultural kind of commodity. Uh, what would you say is your biggest challenge that you've come across since starting? Um, a few years back? And how did you overcome sure. it? Yeah, well,
6: there are many. <laughs> <laughs> it's a but, lofty uh, goal, what you guys are doing. Yeah, it's very so lofty. I, I, a good example, we, we just launched a, a, a new beer. It's called ah. Long Root Ale, and it incorporates a grain called Crinza, which was developed by the Land Institute in Kansas. It's something that Wes Jackson and his team there have been working on for many, many years. And uh, they, they really didn't think that they would be able to get uh, Kernza uh, out to the marketplace, you know, in Wes's lifetime. And so um, in our film, Unbroken Ground, you know, he actually states, you know, we're a little ahead of schedule. So that was great. But the challenges in, related, in relation to that um, were certainly many. And, and one is that Kernza is a, a new grain. So, uh-huh. again, just like buckwheat, you ne- we needed to find infrastructure that could deal with a smaller grain. Um, we we were we are looking at malting equipment and things like that. You know, what who has the equipment available, or what do we need to buy in order to uh, provide uh, the infrastructure? Uh, to be able to produce something like a beer Mm -hmm. uh and so we we solved that then we needed to find growers who were willing uh you know close to the area of production uh for for cleaning the grain and things like that um who were willing to grow it with organic practices and uh so we we and somebody who was used to growing that type of crop. And right. so since it was relatively new, we actually ended up with a a, a rye grower who was willing to convert his, his crop from conventional to organic. And um, he knew a lot about uh, this kind of crop, and mm-hmm. so we were able to to. Connect those dots and, and plant. Um, now we have about 125 acres of of that planted, wow. uh, and then you know, yeah. So there's many many layers to it, right? Yeah, it sounds. <laughs> but like... but the more people that get involved in this kind of thing and, and recognize that there's just so much creativity uh, and nutritional density in in many many of these new crops that uh, we you know we we will bring back that infrastructure if they could invest in it. If
2: They could incent create the demand for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, That is, I think that's just wonderful. Um, How how big is your product portfolio right now?
6: So, gosh, we probably have about
2: 30 SKUs um,
6: or so. Uh, mainly we have uh, wild sockeye salmon. Mm-hmm. We have wild pink salmon. We have fruit bars. We have buffalo jerky. We've got three soups. We have three breakfasts. We just launched the beer. Yeah. And we have many other products in R&D. So lots wow. of good, tasty things to come down the line.
2: What's your favorite
6: so far? Well, right now I have to say the beer is pretty darn good <laughs> with a bowl of with a bowl of our black bean soup. How right? about with that good combination?
2: Yeah, that sounds delicious. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I'm I'm getting hungry, so now i and we're going to have to wrap it up in a, in a second. But where can um, where can listeners find your products?
6: So our products can be found online. So mm-hmm. we actually have patagoniaprovisions.com. It's a separate URL. And mm-hmm. on that, you can, ha- you can see our film, Unbroken Ground, which is a 25-minute film that really talks a lot about what we talked about today. Mm-hmm. And all of our products. So we will deliver to you. Wow. And many gift boxes, things like that, Yes. And then uh we are in probably about forty Patagonia stores in uh, the United States. We just launched in Japan as well, and that's been going incredibly well and we are in Marin. We're doing some grocery tests at uh, good earth uh in Marin and our in California, and our beer is uh being sold at 101 whole food stores wow. in California, Oregon and Washington. Um our company's based in Sausalito, so we're we're sort of branching out from from the west coast from here from west coast yeah. and then you know, but of course we do have stores on the east coast and um online can reach
2: anybody yeah I know I I, you know it's admittedly been a long time since I've been in a Patagonia store mostly the only reason is that all of my stuff lasts so darn long (laughs) it's like I have like a 20 year old fleece and it's still just as good as it as it was but now that um I know there's food in these stores I will for sure be going back sooner
6: (laughs) It yeah, yeah, definitely enhances the lifestyle aspect of the company. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, this has been so great. Thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about um, this, your, your company. Thank you, Jen. I really appreciate mm, that. All right. Have a great day. <laughs> You All bye right. Bye. bye. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up th- um, for today, but I want to thank all of our guests, yeah. Kyle Benjamin, Lyndon Vickler, and Bridget Cam- Bur- Cameron for coming on the show. Um, I also want to thank our show sponsors for your generous support. Um, our show is produced with the help from Taylor Lenzett, and the music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre bien All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, like, share, follow and post to us on Facebook and follow us on and find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. I'm Jenna Liu and thank you for listening.
3: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website